Welcome to the latest episode of Comic Book Physics through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. Now, this month's podcast is not going to be quite the same as the rest. This one's really more comic book biology than comic book physics. We've already talked about Cyclops and his optic blasts. Some of the other requests that we've had are for Angel's Flight or Iceman's Ice Bridges. All of these are based on mutation, and that's how they got their powers, and that's not something that we've covered yet. So we're going to get a little bit into that today. So mutation is something that comes right out of uh, Darwinian evolution. And this is something that's open to some debate. You'll have people who are essentially creationists, and that's how they identify themselves, who say that evolution does not apply to humans, or it doesn't happen at all, or various degrees of that, because it conflicts with their religious texts. So we're going to delve into that creationist viewpoint and compare it to other viewpoints and, you know, see how much of that holds water before we get into the mutations itself. After all, if you can't evolve, then you can't mutate. So first we need some definitions. There's a big difference between the words hypothesis and theory, as far as scientists are concerned. A hypothesis is the idea. That's what you just come up with. That's what most people refer to as a theory. It's an idea that's not proven. Now, scientists, when they talk about theory, they're talking about a hypothesis that has been rigorously and repeatedly put through the grind of experiments. So a lot of experiments are actually designed to disprove the hypothesis rather than prove them. It's easier to find an example of this theory not holding up than it is to prove that this is the only theory that can explain the results we have. So science can eliminate ideas, but it can't guarantee that certain ideas are correct. Look at Newton's laws. They stood quite literally for centuries unchallenged and considered fact and laws. Scientists don't use the word law very much anymore. And Newton's laws are a good example of that. In the early 20th century, it was Einstein who figured out that, no, there are problems with some of Newton's ideas. Now, Newton's ideas in terms of forces and interactions still stand, but the physics he developed from it often fail under very close scrutiny. So we needed very accurate measurements, or you're looking at something very, very small, like quantum mechanics, or very, very large, like stars and planets. Simply because, although Newton couldn't possibly have known at the time, their equipment to detect this just simply did not exist and was years and years away, Newton assumed that everyone agrees on how much time elapses between two events. It turns out that's not the case. And the difference in elapsed time is exactly enough to make sure everyone agrees on how fast light moves, and that's the fundamental part of the theory of relativity. So... Science cannot specifically say this theory is true. What it does do very, very well is exclude the impossible. It can say whatever theory or whatever idea really does represent the reality must fit within a certain window. And there's a very strict limit in terms of what can fit in that window. And that limit gets stricter and stricter and stricter as we do more and more experiments, which is why hypothesis does not become a theory until it's been tested by multiple agencies. So if you want to claim that vaccines cause autism, you need more than one study. And not just one, but many, many studies. For example, that's an idea that hasn't withstood many, many studies. So there's some creationists who will call what they have a creationist theory. It is truly a hypothesis until it stands up to the test of experiments. Now, there are slightly different versions of this. The basic idea is that humans did not evolve into the state we are in over time, but rather we were created by some god or unseen power, some deity, or outside hand. 
So the universe was assembled and humans were assembled on Earth within this universe. A lot of times this idea is also paired with the idea that the entire human species descended from two individuals, commonly named Adam and Eve. So there's basically two ideas. One is that humans evolve, one is that we descended from two people. Individually, we can look at those and it's harder to come up with absolute yes or no. I mean, we have a lot of fossil records and a lot of history that supports the theory of evolution very, very well. But then again, it's always possible that some all-seeing power assembled the earth out of nothing five or six thousand years ago, including falsified fossil records. Why this power would put skulls of animals that never existed, I don't know. We do know that there's no chance dinosaurs around five or six thousand years ago. We know that there's 65 million years of rock in there. It wasn't extra compacted because of a flood or anything like that, but that's getting into a geophysics podcast. So for now, let's look at these two, and let's look at something we can measure in the moment, because there are people who go out and will question how well we understand time frames, given that we've only started measuring these things very recently. We will eventually find that there's something we can look at just a snapshot of immediate time that will eliminate at least one of the four possibilities. Now, I say four possibilities because we have two ideas, and each of those ideas is either true or false. The most common creationist idea is one we'll call option A, where the entire human species starts with two individuals and never evolves from that point on. Then there's option B, where we do start with two individuals, but continue to evolve from that point on. So we are assembled by the all-seeing power or the all-knowing power, and then change it from that point forward. The third option, which is not one I've heard anyone propose, but which is logically permitted, is that the human race descended from more than two individuals who did not evolve. And then the final one is the one that most scientists support, including myself. I'll just get that bias out there right here and now. And that is that the species started with more than two individuals that were identifiably human and that we did evolve from that point forward. And evolution even got us to that collection of individuals that we started with. So these are the four realms. And it turns out some of these are explicitly testable now. So we start by taking a look at what evolution is and what it means. Darwin said it was survival of the fittest. One member of a species would have a trait others didn't have that would make it more or less likely for them to propagate. Now, in Darwin's time, we didn't have a specific mechanism we could use to propose exactly why these changes were happening over time. Nowadays, we do. We can tie it directly to genetics. So if there is some sort of error that can occur when adults are passing their genetic information along to children, then we can produce these errors, and that will produce the random changes Darwin mentioned. And then, if these changes somehow make it more or less likely for that offspring to have children of their own, well, that's going to, in the long term, affect the species and introduce or eliminate those traits. So, do these errors occur? Well, yes, they do. And that's something that we cannot deny. For example, if we have in some chromosomes a couple of adjacent genes get messed up, we can produce colorblindness. The way genes are packed into our genetic information, into our chromosomes, is in the form of chromosomes. Now, most of the time, those chromosomes are coiled up very, very tightly. While coiled, we actually have 46 of these chromosomes packed into the nucleus inside every cell. That's packed in pretty tightly. When you uncoil it, depending on the chromosome, according to what I've been able to dig up on Wikipedia, I admit that's the source of this information for the, the next few moments, 
it unspools significantly. These are packed in very, very tightly. We are looking at anywhere from about 20 to 85 millimeters in terms of the length of these coils. So we're looking at, you know, when we unspool them all as a ballpark, either two and a half meters or close to three yards when these are all laid end to end. Now, all of these genes get duplicated when cells divide and grow or when information is being passed along to the offspring. The process that produces those cells for the reproduction systems deliberately shuffles them. And sometimes errors do happen. I say shuffles because it is in some ways similar to shuffling a deck of cards. If you've got a deck of cards and your hands are packed and you're jammed full and you're trying to shuffle and you're trying to mix them up, you're probably going to end up bending the corners of the cards or, you know, maybe if you're doing it in the traditional sense, so not, you know, flipping, fanning them and then getting the corners together, but actually just holding the deck in one hand and using the other hand to pick some cards up and then shove them in the others. There's slight damage that happens to the sides. You can even end up flipping the occasional cards so it turns around backwards. These sorts of errors happen in genetic shuffling as well. So, for example, with colorblindness, you've got the gene for the red cones to let us see red light side by side with the gene to let us see green light. When these are duplicated and then shuffled, sometimes errors happen and you get two reds or two greens passed on the offspring instead of one of each. Sometimes an entire chromosome gets duplicated. We call that Down syndrome. Sometimes even within a single cell in our body, things get duplicated. The cells start duplicating uncontrollably because restraints are not in place. We call that cancer. These effects are all seen in front of us every day. We can't deny that they're happening. This is evidence of errors happening when the genes are duplicated to pass from one cell to the next. So again, we know that's going on. The question is, do these errors become more or less common over time? So if there is some sort of guiding hand preventing evolution, then the frequency of different genes and different versions of the genes called alleles showing up is not going to change. If it was a totally random and natural process, things would change. All it takes is something that makes it less likely to have a child, that potential and the people who are prone to that are going to be weeded out. If it's more likely to procreate and have a child, that's going to happen more and more often in the population. Right? Now, whether it's something superficial is just having more attractive features in terms of whatever the culture values at the time, or just you know the natural drives to have that procreation activity are elevated, Anything like this is going to contribute to these. So it would take some sort of powerful third party to make sure that this wasn't happening on a larger scale. So can we tell if things are changing over time in human beings who only started analyzing genetic information fairly recently? Well, we can think about this. If we're looking at case A, where we have Adam and Eve that launched the, the whole species, but we do not evolve, then we can test this. We know that these errors are happening. They happen about 1 in 3,000 times. But if there's some sort of powerful hand weeding them out, we're not going to have any long-term changes in terms of the information that we have. Now, as I said, different types of genes are called alleles. Let's take a look at what we know about alleles and what we have. The most common result of different alleles is blood types. If we get the RH factor for the moment, we just look at the regular blood type gene. We have one gene that determines our blood type. That gene comes in three alleles, A, B, or O. Each child has two different alleles, or possibly two of the same alleles, one inherited from dad, one inherited from mom. Now, with these two combinations, we actually have four different blood types. The three alleles are labeled A, B, and O. 
If we get one of each of A and B, we have blood type AB. If we get two A's or an A and an O in any combination, it's type A, two B's or BO is type B, and two O's is type O. This is part of the reason type O blood is rare. Of the nine possible combinations, only one produces O. So that's nine possible combinations coming from both parents, four blood types, and three alleles. Now I say nine because it's any parent, since each parent only has two of these alleles. You're not going to be able to get A, B, or O from a single parent. It's either going to be A, B, A, O, B, O, or maybe just one if they've got matching alleles. But in the entire population, there are nine possible combinations. Now, if the entire population descended from two individuals and did not evolve, then as a result, we would have a maximum of four alleles for any given gene. Two would have come from Adam, two would have come from Eve. So beyond that, if we have even a single gene that appears with more than four alleles, then we know we came either from more than two individuals, or we evolved since then, or both. But the idea that we started with two individuals and did not evolve can be completely eliminated if we find a fifth allele for even a single gene. Now, if we don't find a fifth allele, and if we've got an entire species where every gene comes in a maximum of four alleles, or some even a maximum of three, because there are some genes that are only present in mom's DNA and not dad's, well, that'd be pretty strong evidence that after all this time, nothing has been introduced, and that it would strongly support case A. Well, the good news for us in this podcast is that the Human Genome Project has done the heavy lifting already. They've been going through and trying to catalog all the genetic information that we know and different genes from different people. So what we know for sure is that a huge amount of genetic information simply seems to encode life on Earth. For example, about 50%, actually about 50.4% of the DNA found in human beings is also found in bananas. Humans and bananas don't have a lot in common aside from the fact that they're both on Earth. We have 98.6% genetic overlap with chimpanzees. We've got 99.9% overlap for all humans. So 99.9% .9 of human DNA is made up of genes that come in a single allele and they add up to human. That last 0.1% is the percentage that allows for variations from individuals to individuals. So let's look a lot more closely at that last 0.1% and see what we have there, because that's where our allele counts are really going to matter. These are the ones that happen potentially in either more or less than four. And that should give us a definitive answer, at least between options A and D. So we know that, you know, looking at the genes that vary a little bit from individual to individual, 70% of them have more than two alleles. So 30% have exactly two 70% have more than two. Here's the key. About 40% of these genes have more than four alleles. About 28% have more than eight alleles. About 20% have more than 16 alleles. And about 18% of those genes that determine the differences between individual humans have more than 32 alleles. Now, some of these genes have a lot. There are genes that have been identified in over 700 different alleles for a single gene. That's a lot more than four. So, let's go back and look at our four options. Option A, we start with Adam and Eve, we do not evolve. That would have a hard allele limit of four. 
we've found that there's a lot of genes that go way beyond four alleles, this can be eliminated. This is not an option. Option B. So the option that where we started with two individuals and evolved from that point on is possible. The question is looking at the error rates. We know that errors occur about one in 3,000 or one in 3,000 cases in cell duplication. We also know that a lot of those are more likely to mess things up and not likely to be propagated. So we're going to have a pretty relatively low rate of new alleles being passed on. If we have even one new allele survive each generation, then it would take about 14,000 years to introduce the number of alleles it takes to have over 700 alleles of a single gene. That 14,000 year mark, like I said, that's a minimum. Even that, it's unlikely. It's probably going to take a lot more time than that. So unless we have a gene that's got a very high error rate, it's unlikely. Now, there are different genes in different positions that are more or less likely to produce errors. Just like when you're shuffling those cards, you're more likely to damage the corners than the middles. Some areas are more protected than others. And it's not just a matter of generations, it's a matter of individuals and how many have propagated. So yeah, when you're dealing with a small population, new alleles won't in be introduced that quickly. As you get to larger and larger populations, and there's more and more people out there, well, then the rates of introducing new alleles get higher and higher and higher because there's more people reproducing and there's more chances for those errors to take place and be passed on. So it's a very rudimentary calculation. This option is possible. It's just not terribly likely, especially since it's often linked to uh, sources that say that the entire Earth and all of existence is only five or 6,000 years old. Option C is that we started with more than two individuals and there was no evolution and things just kept going. Well, this moment, this just counting alleles doesn't eliminate that option, but we are talking about you know, if we've got 700 alleles, we've got a starting population that's at least 350 individuals. So it's possible, but as I said earlier, I haven't seen anyone who seriously proposed this idea, where humans do not evolve, but started with more than two people. The fourth option, option D, we started with more than two individuals and have evolved since then. This is one that fits the data well. With this one, when we're talking about taking millions of years to form the human species out of other species, there's a lot of opportunity to produce all these different alleles. So that is the one that is the best fit for the data we have. So with that, we can take it as a given that humans do evolve. So the next question, is this level of evolution enough to explain the mutations that we see with the X-Men characters in the Marvel Universe? Well, if it's a simple mutation, it might work. Keep in mind, a lot of these mutations are single generations. So typically the parents are not mutants, and then the child is. It doesn't seem to go the other way. Grant, we haven't seen a lot of mutants who have their own offspring, but it seems like once it starts with a generation, the rest of the generation has it. So if we look at Colossus, Colossus is one of three siblings. He and Ilyana are both mutants. Ilyana is better known as magic. Completely unrelated power sets but two out of the three children are mutants. The Guthrie family, I believe there's eight kids there. A couple of them are mutants. So if you do have one child in a generation that's a mutant, it's very likely that the others in that generation are also going to be mutants, which makes a lot of sense. But often the parents are not. So whatever 
genetic thing is going on that's creating these mutants from these parents, it's happening over a single generation. Right. Species diversification that can produce humans from other primates, that takes generations, that takes thousands of years, if not millions. That makes sense. When you look at the X-Men, it's largely a tough sell. The one that's most likely is probably the classic form of Beast, as he was first introduced in the 1960s. As I mentioned earlier, we have 98.6% overlap with chimpanzees, similar overlaps with other primates, and a lot of our DNA is what's called non-coding DNA. It's genetic information that's there, but it's currently inactive. Our bodies don't do anything with it. So it's not a great stretch to think that Beast has a mutation that takes some of the physical attributes of the primates he descended from and reactivates them in terms of physical proportions. That's essentially what Beast was. He was a really smart guy who was physically more like a gorilla in terms of his proportions and strength than a human. That is the most likely mutation. We'd have that dormant information in us, or more of it, and it's just a matter of flipping the switch to turn it on. Compare this to others. We look at Colossus, who we mentioned before, he's got an entirely different physiology. We're not just talking about turning into organic steel. We're talking about having that organic steel still move, having it retain all his memories, even though it's now solid and he doesn't have any neurons. We've seen that when he gets hurt, he bleeds energy instead of blood. His mass changes. His height changes as he grows and expands. This is a very complicated process that's unlikely to be the product of a single generation. We look at Storm, her weather control. We need a way to broadcast thoughts over a distance. We need a way for those thoughts to directly impact the environment. We need a way for her to process what these are to produce the weather. We need a power source, because adding that much power and creating these weather systems, you've got to dump a lot of energy into the atmosphere, and apparently that's coming from Storm. That's very complicated. We look at Nightcrawler. As he was originally introduced... There's significant physical mutations when he's got the prehensile tail. He's got two fingers in the thumb. He's got a couple of toes and another toe on the back of his foot. Not to mention the blue fur, the cat-like eyes. There's a lot of physical attributes in Nightcrawler before you even get to the teleporting. Uh, it's not even clear if his ability to fade into the shadows is just because his skin is so dark or it's a separate power. Because only his eyes are visible, which means his eyes are luminescent. There's a whole lot going on there, although with Nightcrawler, since Chuck Austin was allowed to write far too many issues of the series, we've learned enough about his father that some of these may not be mutations. Some of those might just be his father's attributes. So by and large, the kinds of mutations we see with the X-Men are too complicated to happen in a single generation. They also don't explain why siblings have such wildly varied abilities. If it was a natural process coming from the same parents, they'd have similar abilities. So, again, Ileana Rasputin would be more likely to be able to turn into organic metal as Peter can than to have her mutant ability, which is to open the stepping discs to and from Limbo. Yeah, the rest of her skills are learned sorcery, but the Limbo discs are a mutation. Similarly, we look at the three Summers children. Cyclops, Havoc, and Vulcan. All three of these characters are mutants with three completely different power sets. We look at the Guthrie kids different abilities. It's very rare to have siblings have similar abilities. The closest thing we've seen is actually the first cousins. 
when Marvel decided that Namor was a mutant, it originally was an offhand thing because they were trying to tie all of their titles together and make it one cohesive universe. So Professor X just threw out the idea, well, maybe Namor's a mutant. They eventually decided he was because neither humans nor Atlanteans had the wings on his feet that Namor had. Well, his first cousin Namorita was also a human-Atlantean hybrid. She also had the wings. They decided that was the family mutation, which is kind of a tenuous idea. But suddenly we have first cousins who've got similar properties, and that's why they're saying, oh yeah, they're family, that's why they have the same mutation. Doesn't quite work that way. So really, the only way to explain the mutations that we see in terms of their severity and their frequency in the Marvel Universe, especially since so many of these abilities are showing up in recent years, mostly within the last 12 years Marvel time. I know they say Namor's the first mutant. Apocalypse would probably dispute that, but the bulk of them have been recently. Uh, Wolverine would have been older than that as well, but the big influx of mutants is in the last 12 years Marvel time. We need to explain why there's such a big kickoff there. We need to explain why there's so magic we, or dramatic. We need to explain why there's such differences between siblings. Really, the only way to explain this is if at least one of the gods in the Marvel Universe, and we know they've got the Christian god, the Norse gods, the Greek gods, they've got pretty much every pantheon that's out there, is alive and well and exists in the Marvel Universe. At least one of these agencies is out there making these things happen. There's no other way to explain it. So that's basically the conclusion we've been able to draw. In the Marvel Universe, the X-Men could work because we know there are deities who can control it and all the mechanisms are in place. Now, in terms of the individual powers and whether certain individuals work, will that be like the discussion we have with Cyclops? We'll do that on a case-by-case basis. As we said, Iceman and Angel are coming down the pipe. We're not exactly sure when. We'll figure that out as we go. At any rate, that's about all we have to say about mutations, so please join us again the last Wednesday of next month as we hit our next topic, and the next one, I'm sure, will be physics rather than mutations or biology. Any suggestions you have for either physics topics you'd like to hear me discuss or comic book physics ideas that you'd like to hear explained, please send them to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.